Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David, overall. Although I do have a, a mystery ailment, I, I seem to have been bitten and envenomed by some sort of creature. I'm, I'm forced to conclude uh, a spider, although I didn't see any spiders. And where I live is, you know, really pretty much insect free. It's also been very dry. Uh, so there just aren't mosquitoes. It's it's very strange for me because I've lived a, a great portion of my life in parts of the world where the insect life is simply intense. You know, whether we're talking about mosquitoes that carry malaria or ferocious bush flies or spiders like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I've seen um, one of the, the bird catching spiders in the jungle. You know, they, they are big orb spinners and the webs are sufficiently large and durable enough to actually stop and contain small songbirds, you know, in the rainforest. Jesus. So I don't know. I, I but I'm 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 pleased to report that I don't think amputation is going to be in order. I've 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 gone for antibiotic cream, uh, hot washcloths, and I made a very foul smelling uh tropically influenced poultice drawing mm. on some of my uh knowledge from the past. And um that's now worked. So I think it's, it's calmed down to the point where it only looks, you know, like a bullet wound now, not like a infestation of some uh, counter biological force. So that's the news here. So things are going Cronenbergian for you over there. Um, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. I mean, I, I made the mistake of looking at the, uh, the thing with my magnifying glass and oh no that oh, was no. really contraindicated uh That's certainly <laughs> before lunchtime that was not a good move at all uh, oh no. man how about um supplements and teas well you know i, I do I, I hit the vitamins and stuff pretty hard um i uh i'm hoping this poultice will will, will have calmed things down uh, I, I've cleaned it off now because it's not uh, well. It's it's a little bit odiferous, um, and it took me a while in my mortar and pestle to make. So I might do one of those again tomorrow if it's if it hasn't calmed down even a bit more fully. But um, it, it's an unpleasant looking. It's just on the inside of my left knee. And I'm very grateful it isn't farther up my thigh. That's yeah. that's kind of where I'm at. Be grateful for little things, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. If it was if it was further up, we probably wouldn't be recording this evening because you'd be at the hospital. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd be forced to. Do, you know, there are so, certain things that you just can't ignore. You don't, you don't take the risk. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh well, well, I am certainly sorry to hear that. Um, Nothing quite like that is going on here, although um, it's just about that time in baby It land. is. I'm so excited uh, for you guys. What's yeah. the report? Well, the report is that uh, listeners uh, who are hearing this now, we are recording this episode and the next episode uh, so that I can have some baby time because we are just about to head to the hospital here in a few days for an induction. So... 
Monday is the day we're recording this on Friday. So uh, yeah, it's it's here, man. It's here. I recently went to a place called the uh, Botanic. It's a Botanica, right? It's called the uh, Botanica uh, de San Cipriano. Uh, and it's up in the southwest of Oklahoma City, which is highly uh, Mexican, Hispanic, um, lots of taquerias and tire shops, and a few, uh, you know, witch stores, right? So we went in, it's a lovely little shop, it's got, you know, a lot of three foot high Santa Muerte statues lining the the thing, and Jesus on the cross, and St. Cyprian, and St. Michael, all these great statues, and incenses, and you know, energy pyramids and things of that. So my house now smells of uh, Palo Santo and I got this nice smelling frankincense and this nice smelling myrrh here. So we are uh, fully cleansing the the place for the new for the new child, which is good. Wow, fantastic. And what's the grandmother report? You've got both of them nearby, right? Correct. Yeah. So my mother is hysterical. She calls me every day just for updates and you know she's a (laughs) she's a school teacher and they're currently going through their their test testing season right mid-april and she's she's letting me know you know if if you need me she's like i'll i'll leave and i'm like mom you number one you can't leave because you know she's a special education teacher there's nobody else who's going to be able to to do what she does so i tell her you know calm down it's going to be fine um but she is like a like a junkie telling herself that she can stay off the junk she's like okay i can i can wait i can wait you know if if gus is here (laughs) on tuesday i can wait until friday and i'm like okay sure thing but uh but rios's mother is um going to come up on monday while we're in the hospital and take care of the dog kalua and uh sort of keep house for us for a bit while we're there and then she'll be there when we get back and at that point it's just a a, a tag team, hopefully not a war, but a, a tag team situation <laughs> between the mother and the mother-in-law for uh, for infant time. But you know, I honestly could not be more grateful for that. I um, today I had some pretty extreme nerves about the situation. You know, I mean, so far everything is you know going fine. Uh, there's nothing really to to be alarmed about besides the fact that childbirth is one of the most massively physical and psychologically intense events that a a woman and then her her partner i think to a lesser extent but still still very prominently can go through in their lives i think so yeah i'm just taking a lot of deep breaths today and reminding myself to to relax you know it look it really is intense i mean when i uh worked in the hospital i started off as a basic orderly and uh, got my paramedic training um and i worked in the er and uh one of i made friends with one of the the older surgeons who was ex-army great guy uh he was a classic old doctor he smoked four packs of pall malls a day and was just a beautiful surgeon he just he was mm-hmm. just part of an older <laughs> world but uh-huh. he would invite me into uh to see autopsies and uh i i I watched many of them and you know it it was a little confronting at first but the first live birth i saw just completely blew me away i mean it was just you know 
it really is a miracle. It, it's a cliche, but it's it's a cliche that remains just so valid and true. You know, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. is a remarkable thing. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see why uh, it, it's been, you know, such a great challenge for, for humanity to, to manage that in, in, in safe conditions. And the whole mystery and a kind of occult nature of the midwifery thing. I mean, I really get why um, I've known a couple of midwives in my life and I really liked them as people, as, as souls, because right. I, I could, you know, get with the magic that what they were doing and it's women's magic. It really is. I think it's, it's um, I, I totally get that idea, but it, it's very hard to think of that whole thing in, in a purely, Western medical science frame for me, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. it is too Mm -hmm. mysterious and and too magical to, to purely be uh, contained with it within that grid. But, but thanks, you know, God for um, the mechanisms of safety, you know, that that exists now. Totally, totally. Our doctor has been great. And there is, there's so much abundance of caution. And as a, you know, as the, as the dad, and I'm, and I know as Rios, as the mother can attest to, uh, we appreciate pretty much all of it. You know, I mean, if the doctor says, well, just, you know, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to, you know, do this test. We say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Please please have an abundance of caution, but you know, uh, on the magic thing, then this is neither here nor there, but I thought that this was fun. So while I was in the store, so botanicas are, have candles, just for days, right? Just rows and rows of, of magic candles that you can light in order, you know, they have road openers, they have petitions to, you know, San Benito and San, uh, uh, San Miguel and, you know, pretty much anything you could think of. And it came to me while you were, you know, talking about like the magic stuff, because we were looking very specifically for candles related to childbirth, right? And there weren't any specific ones, although the gentleman who worked there helped us out and, and found some other stuff. But while I was looking, I saw some candles that were just hilarious, right? There's a candle and uh, and it has a woman on it, right? And the woman is holding uh, some puppeteer strings, right? And there's there's a man at the end of it, right? And <laughs> in, Sp- in Spanish, it says, you know, uh, control him, Right. And, uh, and then there's another one that has a bunch of police officers on it, and it's a candle for keeping the cops away and stuff like that. But I love that kind of uh, very practical magic, right? It's just sort of everyday uh, banal stuff, right? And I, I really thought that that store in particular was kind of like a it's kind of like a, like a Walgreens almost, or a, you know, like a corner store or a dollar store or something that just has, you know, toilet brushes and toilet paper and Cheetos and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But for, but for magic needs, you know, yeah, here's, here's, here's yeah. one to keep your boyfriend. Here's one to, you know, steal, steal a man away from another woman. Here's uh you know, here's one for, uh you know, for your dog to make sure that your dog listens to you. There's all sorts of I get that totally. That that was exactly the last time I was in Africa, just around the corner from where I lived. There was a store just like, and it was just so fantastic to go in because it smelled so bizarre and amazing, Mm -hmm. you know. And Mm -hmm. it was it was actually really well organized. It was a beautiful apothecary sort of, but it but it 
the the practical goals behind the roots and herbs and and all of the concoctions were exactly what you're saying really basic things like you know if you're jealous of you know uh someone else's lover well you know this is this will make this will you know start sending them bad luck or if you need you know more immune system build up or if you need an erection or if you need to get a job or it's all this wonderful sort of get aligned with you know the reality of human need it was fantastic that's cool yeah it was very cool it was very cool but um yeah i think we can get into it today if uh, if you're ready, I I, I was wondering. Um, I, I just wanted one one other thing for you to share yeah. with our listeners because I I think it's really cool. Uh, okay. I know that that um, up through uh, the pregnancy that you've been reading to Rios, but also reading to to Gus. And yes. I thought it would be cool just for you to mention what you've been reading to listeners because you know it is true. There's absolutely no question about it, that parents who read to kids give their children one of the great life head starts that you could possibly get. And I think it was cool that you started before he's even born. What kind of stuff were you you reading? Oh, there's all sorts of different stuff. So there are the classics, like where the wild things are, um, which I have to do a lot of description with because a lot of those pages are just, just illustration. Right. Uh, Good Night Moon is one. We have a collection of Sesame Street books about, uh, you know, nap time and, and bubbles and things like that. There's a book about hedgehogs, a book about foxes. Um, and then there's some some pretty cool, some interesting ones. So when I go to Half Price Books, I I go to the children's section now and I try to find the most interesting, weird looking ones. Right. So I got him one called The Town on the Turtle which is about a turtle that has the whole world on its back, you know, kind of like some, it's got this great kind of impressionistic art style. It's probably actually my personal favorite of the kids books that I have. And then there's one that I haven't quite uh, decided if I'm going to read yet, but I had to buy it because it was so bizarre. It's called um, Hiroshima no Tagake, I believe is what it's called. And it's a children's book about the atom bomb. Uh, written, yeah, written in Japan. And it's about, it's about the burst of light, right. And the burst of light and how it took all these people away. And I was reading that and I thought, wow, this is, this is very, very heavy. And I'm not sure this makes for light reading. So I haven't read that one to him yet, but, um, you know, and then there's, you know, there's, of course there's Dr. Seuss and there's one called the, you know, guess how much I love you. I love you forever. Um, his bookshelf is becoming, uh, impressive although not as impressive as i would like it to be i want his you know bookshelf to kind of rival my own so he'll be uh he'll be spoiled in that respect which is how my mother spoiled me when we used to go to the giant in uh in virginia they would have a spin rack of course with stephen king novels and you know robin cook and stuff like that but they'd also have a spin rack of children's books and i wasn't ever allowed to get uh candy or soda or anything like that, but I could pick one of those books out of the spin racks. So that's a that's something that I'll pass on to onto him. Uh, I don't really think they have that per se anymore, but I think that the library and half price books are going to be kind of uh, you know Gus and Dad's 
hangout spots, right? Where you can have a dollar, a dollar amount, right? We can do $20 per trip or something like that and just pick out what he wants because um, it made my life what it is, you know? I mean, reading was the most important thing. Yeah, and there's still so much great stuff from the past. Not that there isn't good stuff emerging, but I, I think that the political correctness issues is really resonating very hard within children's books. And, you know, some of the classics, I, I don't think you can get a better book than Go Dog Go, you know? I mean, That's I just, a great one. I yeah. just think that I look at that, yeah. I look at those pictures and I, my, I just smile. You know, mm -hmm. I just instantly feel good. And yeah. at some point, I, I'm, I'm using it for the, the big novel that I'm working on when I, and I, I'll get to it when I finish the, the textbook. But it's a beautiful collection of um, folk tales from Papua New Guinea called The Turtle and the Island. And um, I, it's very hard to find. I mean, I got it there. Um, but I'll, I'll send that to you when I, when I finally finished with it, it has some beautiful and beautiful stories. And I mean, a lot of them are origin myths, you know, how the turtle got her shell, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there are mm -hmm. a lot of other, um, stories within it that are just absolutely lovely for any age. And, and it happens to be a folktale collection that is hard to come by. So, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I would I'll, like to do, yeah, I would like to do that. And I would like to do when he gets a bit older, the real kind of Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. Right. And I have a collection called, it's called feast of something. I'll have to find it, but it's a collection of uh, Jewish folk tales as well. And that's also in kind of an older age bracket, but I thought, you know, maybe when he got a little bit older, could start reading him some of those spooky, gory ones. Yeah, uh, that yeah. I, that I think have a lot of. I think they they have a lot of uh, a worth to them, you know. And uh, that's something that I'll have to navigate as he grows up. But you know, I think I think kids are ready for a lot more uh, dramatically speaking than we might give them give them credit for. But that's I mean that's so far in the future at this point that you know maybe not worth thinking too much about. But no, well that's anyhow. cool. That's cool. It's cool to have a, a a plan that way to have that in the back of one's mind. All right. Well, that sounds like a good report. Um, yeah. Congratulations yeah. to all three of you. Yeah, you're, thanks. You're on the go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, on that note, what are we going to talk about today, officially? <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to round off uh, our last sort of series about the continuum of progress idea, and particularly our discussion about progress in social terms. Uh, one of our listeners wanted me to flesh out a thought that I'd had, and I'll, I'll do it very quickly. Um, basically, my, my, my thinking is that our current uh, social obsession with issues such as race, gender, and sexual orientation have a lot to do with our fear of confronting the intimate, uh, private, individual, and to some extent secret worlds of psychic experience, and, and therefore the, the possibility of mental illness, uh, and our inability to face the species-wide challenges and the need for indeed interspecies thinking and collaboration in order to address the environmental and, you know, potential extinction crises that, that confront us. And I think that's a good way to, to, to end that investigation of progress, that we've moved from the mythic religious through the technological and biological through the cultural down to a pretty mundane, constant media exposure of, of sociality. And I don't think that's 
by accident. I think that we default to the social and the social media level of, of discourse in a sense because we can't handle uh, the, the deeper private um, interior psychic worlds. And on the other side, the larger cultural, global, uh, humanist, species-wide thinking that, that we need to engage with. And that may be an interesting way to look at our topic coming up, which uh, the frame uh, and working title is The Diet of Illusion. And I think that what we intend to do is look at the notion of, of media. Um, what a strange word that has become, you know, a medium. We've now just completely take that, you know, for granted. And, and where our engagement with this, it's almost an alternative reality, you know? I, that's the way I think of it. When I returned to, to reside in America in, in 2012, the, I was out on the road a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had several books that I was doing readings. I was interested in revisiting places I, I knew from the past. I wanted to see some new parts of America. Uh, I was doing a lot of um, uh, just personal and professional photography. So I was traveling a lot. And every time I, I got out of my house and was on the road or in the airport or wherever, uh, I kept noticing how different my physical reality and interchanges with people were relative mm -hmm. to how the mainstream media phrased things. And it just seemed like I was traveling between totally different worlds. And I, I think that we talked about how technology has kind of uh, taken on a life of its own. Edward T. Hall uses the term extensions you know, our technology has an evolutionary path unto itself. And now I think we can say the same of the whole world of media, you know, mm -hmm. mainstream media, both news and commercial entertainment. So what do you think about that as a topic to investigate over a couple of episodes? I think that's great. I think that's great. I think that perhaps a good place to start with that, and you mentioned Edward T. Hall and his notion of extensions, which, you know, brings to mind Marshall McLuhan and, you know, his sort of definition of what media is. So Marshall McLuhan, McLuhan is famous for his quote, you know, the medium is the message. And I think that we can unpack that a little bit, specifically with his definition of what exactly media is. So I think basically what McLuhan says in his book, which is called Understanding Media, he calls the subtitle of understanding media is actually extensions of man. So that's an important connection there. Um, it's basically that any sort of consequence of the ingesting of a certain medium, it, it doesn't have so much to do with what is being sort of beamed into your head message wise, but is a necessary product of the medium itself. And there's this example that I've heard that I thought was really great about a monkey using a stick to dig in a hole for ants. You've probably, you know, seen that on the Discovery Channel or something. They'll sort of pull the stick out and, you know, eat the ants off of the stick. But when the monkey is using that stick, that's actually media. That's an extension 
like an extended appendage of the monkey itself. But the consequence of the monkey using that stick to go into the hole to pull ants out is that some of the other monkey's senses are dulled. For example, the monkey is leaving itself open to attack from a predator, particularly from behind, because its senses have kind of been been dulled. And so what McLuhan is kind of extrapolating from that when it comes to things like radio and television, and now the internet, is that these act as extensions, but also a bit of a, um, a, a cri- having a crippling effect on some of our other faculties. So I know that's kind of a lot to sort of start out with, but I sort of I lit up when I heard extension, so I figured I would go there first. No, I think that's a good place to start, and then I think we can backtrack to historically how we've gotten there. I think there are a couple of of, of names that come up instantly in, in, in this context. You know, Freud talked about this issue in terms of man is a prosthetic god, you know, mm-hmm. and, and looked at extensions in terms of prostheses, you know, extensions of our senses, which then, you know, in a sense, do in fact debilitate us because we depend, become dependent upon them. And uh, that makes me think of, of a wonderful uh, quotation from Emerson that um, I used in one of my books, actually, uh, Zanesville, I think. Man is a god in ruins. And I think Emerson is an interesting touchstone because he and Thoreau and Melville in the mid-19th century were really sensing the, the incredible power of the mass communications medium and how that was affecting consciousness on an individual level, on a community level, and on the, the societal level. For the, for the first time in history, the word society gets used in a very different context than what it had been used historically. Up until the rise of, of the, when mass communications began to really take hold, society meant really high society. You know, it meant mm-hmm. uh, the nobility, it meant the, the aristocracy, it meant people who meant something. But suddenly we begin to use that term in a much more general sense of the public, you know, people, people are talking about this, you know, that kind of, of sense of society. Um, and I think that's an interesting sort of, of, of transition. Um, mm-hmm. But we it took a while for the idea of a medium and therefore media to really take hold. I don't know if people are aware of that. The first uh, regular newspaper in America was the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser. And it actually dates back to 1784, uh, which is a long time. Uh, the first independent paper in any kind was actually produced by um, Ben Franklin's older brother. Uh, hmm. And it was it came out, it started in 1721. So it it was a long time before the distribution networks really began to get any kind of regular news vehicle out to people in remote areas. I mean, let's let's face it, America was was very rural based. It was an agricultural uh, economy. You know, it, 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 the idea of people being connected in that medium sense really took another hundred years to really dig in. And in the meantime, we had subscription services in terms of magazines and how books were 
passed around. We had the first women's book clubs, uh, which, you know, that gets lost in terms of a lot of gender studies programs. But I think there's a fantastic uh, world of discovery. There's, There's thousands of what were called sentimental novels that are no longer known by anyone outside a few specialist fields. But it really took some time for that to to percolate through the culture. And mm-hmm. we, you know, jumping forward in time, we've had to adjust to some enormous transitions very, very quickly. But I, I think one of the, the, the ways to maybe um, start discussing the idea of medium and media is to look at a fundamental distinction between apparent content and advertising. And we have an idea, I think, that um, advertising is kind of a a supplement, a necessary supplement, which is, um, or what would be another way to put it, an unfortunate side effect of content. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has never, ever been true. Uh, in fact, the whole reason that any kind of objectivity, any attempted objectivity emerged in what we would today call journalism happened because the publications sought advertising revenue and they therefore were obligated to deal with multiple sides of issues and to strive for some apparent form of objectivity, which has always been a little bit, you know, questionable, and I think has become enormously questionable in our time. But I I think people don't realize that advertising and the need to to please a range of advertisers is the only reason that any kind of code of conduct for journalism and publications ever emerged at all. Hmm. Now, are we talking about specifically America here? Well, As far as as far as this goes, uh, certainly very specifically America, absolutely. But I think okay. you could absolutely say the same holds true in the UK, and to some extent, the, the, I mean, they're really the whole European development is, is a little bit more complicated because of of just the age, the history you know, of the continent right. and the different right. cultures. But right. by by the mid nineteenth century, America is is without really attempting to do so, is is leading trends. I, I think mm-hmm. that there certainly the UK has its own particular flavor. Um, I mean there's no it's not because of Rupert Murdoch that that because that the, the UK has lots of tabloids. He didn't found those. I mean he's from Australia. He bought those. That that kind of, of approach to uh, newspapers is a very English British thing. Um, and, and France has its own very, you know, different worlds. Same with Italy, same with Germany. So there are some real, real big differences. But on the other hand, um, I mean, what, what made the American uh, trajectory so interesting is that we're talking about a huge land mass. We're talking about very distinct worlds of rural versus metro that Europe just didn't have that kind of ground to cover, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. took took their time frame in America basically because of geography and demographics. Right. 
that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that America, especially in the past century, at least, has innovated in ways that other places have therefore emulated. You know, I knew we were going to talk about this, so I did a little bit of research. You want to hear my sort of rough timeline as far as cable news goes? I think that would um, be helpful. I think that would be helpful because okay. then we can we can always jump back to to ground where that came out of from uh, you know a more mainstream three network background. I mean, there are, right. there are some people who are listeners who remember that I grew up with that. Um, but I think yeah, let, let let's jump around because that's the in the nature of of the idea of media. And I think that uh, McLuhan is a good reference point there because he was always doing that. And I think we need to jump back to some of his thoughts because um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. a real you know pioneer of of analyzing media and its effect. So hit us with the timeline. Okay, cool. So here's a very rough timeline that I assembled. Um, I have the first uh, nightly televised news show in the year 1940. It was hosted by Lowell Thomas, uh, and it was on NBC out of New York City. And Lowell Thomas had been a nightly newscaster on the radio. And at this point in 1940, the it was only being broadcast uh, within New York City, right? But after that, up through uh, uh, through World War II, up into the Vietnam War, obviously, you know, these nightly newscasts then moved on to places like CBS and ABC uh, until we get to, uh, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, June of 1980. You know what happened in June of 1980? Uh, I have a few ideas. I have a few it ideas. Was the, it was the launch of CNN. Right. right. It was the launch of CNN, and CNN basically invented the 24-hour cable news network, Right. Of any time you turn on that TV, CNN has some sort of news for you. It's hard to imagine now. So I was born in 1986, so CNN was already a thing. Uh, and CNN pretty much had dominance all throughout that time, through the Gulf War, through uh, you know the Clinton scandal. I remember very specifically being about 10 or 11 years old in Germany and CNN always being on, and it was always the Monica Lewinsky thing, right? And I would ask my mother and father what was going on, and they, you know, kind of embarrassed. They didn't, they didn't want to talk to me about what was being talked about on CNN, right? But right. I remember very clearly always thinking of CNN as kind of the the trustworthy source of news, right? Like these were the reporters on the ground. This is when you know people like like Tom Brokaw, right? We're sort of in in the mix of stuff, right? This is where you get the reporter who has been placed in, you know, Iraq and he's, you know, there are things exploding behind him or her as they speak, right? Um then we fast forward a little bit to 2001. Well, actually we back up a bit because in October of 1996 Fox News actually launched and it was launched to 17 million subscribers, so very small compared to where it is today. But then in 2001, I'm sure you can imagine what happened in 2001 that made Fox News rise to the kind of heights that it did. I think it was a combination of, of a few things. It was, the, it was the election, right, between Al Gore and George W. Bush that was highly contested. And then, of course, 9-11. And 9-11 
sort of created this surge of mass delusion and delirium across the entire country. And Fox News, which posited itself as a conservative alternative to mainstream news, really started hitting its stride right around there. That's when figures like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter really started rising to prominence with this uh, sort of mass fear that we all had. And then, uh, well, we have TV where it is today, but I think that you can't really talk about where TV is today without talking about social media. So Facebook was launched in 2004. There's a funny backstory for Facebook as well. Do you know what what the original purpose of Facebook was? I I have heard that, and I've forgotten. It, it was very mundane, wasn't it? It was. It, it was. Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg and his pals wanted to create a website to rate the attractiveness of their of their fellow co heads online, right? Oh no, so, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Facebook oh, that, that's... began as a kind of is she hot or is she not. Oh website. God! I don't know if Mark yeah. Zuckerberg gets to say anything about who's hot. You know, <laughs> I know, I know. He is definitely some kind the of the weirdest ruler. looking dude of yeah. all time. Yeah, he's a be. demon in a he's a demon in a human suit, right? I think that a demon literally ate him and is walking around like in Men in Black, wearing his skin as a suit. That's um, that's just my thought. <laughs> but and then 2006 saw the invention of Twitter. And I think when it comes, it's it's arguable which social media platform has had more influence. I personally would go with the Twitter angle because uh, Twitter currently, today in 2021, is only used by uh, 3% of Americans. There are only, uh, th- only 3% of Americans are active users on Twitter. But Twitter kind of, I think, directly shapes the discourse because it's so chock full of sort of establishment journalists, uh, dissident journalists, academics, people who've been shunned by academia. So these kind of large, uh, what Curtis Yarvin would call cathedral discussions sort of happen on Twitter where they can be as radical and strange as they want to be. They can be sanitized and then pushed out into cable news, which I think has sort of really adopted that that bite-sized, quick uh, dopamine hit style of of reporting right so throughout that time you know my impression of a place or i'm sorry of an organization like cnn as an or as 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 a kind of purveyor of of just just the facts right just the news has uh definitely slipped right and now i think it's pretty clear that every news network is playing to its own different interests but that is my very rough timeline sketch of what I think is important in in this in this history. Okay, okay. Well, that was very well done. Look, I have lots of response points about that. Uh, just without any timeline of or order of, of things that occurred to me, I remember early in in well, CNN was established at that point, but it it, it was it was still hot. You know, and I remember Chuck D of Public Enemy claiming that Public Enemy was like the black CNN, you know, of its time in terms of keeping pace with the news. And of course, you know, interesting enough, CNN would draw heavily uh, for its audience from African-Americans. 
CNN has fallen on some hard times of late. I was just looking at my fancy media analytics, which are much more expensive than I could afford, but old advertising friends make it available to me. Um, and it has crept out into the news that um, they have shed uh, audience uh numbers just massively, 60% down since uh, Biden took office, which I, I think yep. is interesting. Um, but then going back into, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the idea of, of media is that it takes a certain group of people to be checked into it in order to for it to exist at all. It's kind of, you know, it, it's really an extension of language that way. If you have your own private language, well, that doesn't really mean anything unless you can teach it to someone else. You know, right. there's no right. interface. And yeah. one of the, the things which always sticks with me in the history of television, going way back to when we're really way before networks and programming, we're just looking at the technological capability of it. One of the first images ever shown, I think it might be the first image full stop, was uh, a, a, a toy version of Felix the Cat, the, hmm. the comic strip character. And the idea was just that there, it was capable of, of scanning that image and projecting it. And there were about 12 to 20 and then 100 buyers of, of television sets in the New York City area who were part of kind of the beta testing audience to watch this completely static Felix the Cat, which I think is hilarious that that would have been seen as kind of a revolutionary, you know, cool thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. then that made me think of a very interesting book that I, I don't have with me now. I've, I've given it away, but it was, again, about the early days of television when networks would go off the air and there would be a panel that would come up on people's television screens. And, and some people may remember there was a, for reasons that are very curious, there was an Indian head, as in a Native American head, with uh, uh, a war bonnet on, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. this, you know, it, it's a fantastic image, which, which people would don't, you could Google on it. And people would get, would actually fall asleep to this image. And it kind of in a hypnotic sort of way. And I often have wondered, um, you know, it was there maybe more encoded in that message. Mm. And that in turn made me think of a real life story from, from my childhood. Um, I grew up in, in the days of, you know, the really famous newscasters of Huntley and Brinkley. And of course, Walter Cronkite, the avuncular you know, face and voice of total credibility. And no one then would have ever known what political persuasion Walter Cronkite had. I mean, he was, that wasn't the deal. He was the voice of believability. And I had a friend who had, um, when I was very a very young kid, who'd had a really, really traumatic uh, life already. And as part of his survival mechanism, and we're talking about sort of six or seven years old, he, he made himself uh, out of pillowcases and, and laundry, and he created a kind of Walter Cronkite uh, effigy for his bedroom 
that he could talk to, uh, that he could kind of pray to. Uh, And I thought that was such a poignant thing because, I mean, I, I remember as a kid when Walter Cronkite was on, you felt like that's an adult. That's an adult you can trust which is the big right. issue I think is, is, you know, for kids. And that becomes an issue for, for all of us across our connection with, with the media. Who are the faces, the voices that we can trust? And I, I think that within the time frame that you mentioned it is a very big change in that. And you can track that in terms of, of psychological uh, research studies of where, where the media has really started to lose Credibility. It's in a terrible situation today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even if we go back to, you know, the days of William Randolph Hearst, who was, you know, a pretty, uh, I mean, he, that's where the term yellow journalism comes from, sensationalism, you know. You supply the war, we'll supply the ink, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a, a precursor of, of the crassness maybe of Rupert Murdoch, if, if people think in those terms. But there was a lot more belief and trusting of the media then than there is today. So in within that timeline or, or running parallel to that, that you mentioned, I think is a very strange transition in terms of our reaction to the media. And one of the big questions for the future, I think, is can the media survive given its absolute devastatingly low level of belief and trustworthiness that we see today. I mean, what do you think mm-hmm. of that? I think that that is a hundred percent true. And I don't think that it is going to survive in the way that we see it today. I have no idea what is coming next, but I know that it's days are numbered. Nobody trusts anything that they read and with good reason. I mean, you will see articles that directly contradict each other within weeks. And it really does feel as though there's an invisible hand that guides these kind of things, which is stuff that I kind of want to get more into on the next episode. But I want to double back a little bit because something that you said was so fascinating that I wonder if we couldn't dig down into it. And it has to do with the holding pattern the Indian with the war bonnet mm-hmm. head. So when I was in uh, living in Germany, I, of course, lived on an American military base. And for a while, we lived off base. But we had one English-speaking uh, American uh, channel, right? And every night, <clears throat> the programming went like this. It went uh, news radio, uh, the comedy show, Just Shoot Me, Frasier, then Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, and then it turned off, right? And we got a holding pattern, which was a picture of the globe with the letters A-F-R-T-S, A-Farts. I would crack myself up with that, but of course it was the <laughs> armed, armed Forces Radio and Television right, Service. Right. Um, but that idea of the holding pattern, you know, of the signal going dead, it does make you wonder because I guess it made sense in a certain respect, uh, when there simply wasn't content to, to fill things. But this was 1998, 1999. They could have put television shows on all night long, but the holding pattern 
had a feeling to me of control, right? It was telling you go to bed. Right? Mm-hmm. This this is a this is a military base. What are you doing awake past eleven thirty in the evening? You know, so that ho- holding pattern has always had a bit of a sinister overtone to me. I think that's why it's used so often in apocalyptic zombie films, right? People will turn on the television and there's a, you know, a holding pattern, right? It's just like stay tuned for further updates, and you'll have your main character scrolling through the channels. And getting increasingly panicked and saying, you know, like there's nothing's on, like everything's everything's down. And I wonder specifically about the imagery of the of the war bonnet, of the idea of, you know, genocide, extinction, oppression, right? Uh, that image being beamed into people's heads as they fall asleep, right? Kind of guiding their 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 dreams in a way. And I wonder if there isn't an element of kind of ghostly revenge to the whole thing, right? I'm, I'm wondering if you haven't stumbled on perhaps some sort of curse or something like that, for lack of a better term. Well, there's something magical, supernatural, strange, Twilight zone about it. There's no question. And uh, when I've tried to research the origin of that, it, it's been very, very murky, and it's lost in the mythology of of television and, and and mass communications. It it's it's something very, very peculiar. And I'd encourage listeners to to follow up on that. There might be more uh, you know to be found. There's an interesting, I mean someone made a conscious design decision about that. And I think that from memory there is something known about that. But I think it from when I when I try to recall, I I believe there's a dispute about it. So it's not really known. It was something that just slipped through the cracks and was taken for granted and yet seen by millions and millions of people. But, you know, the other thing at the the sign off was, of course, in America was also the national anthem, which is a little bit more straightforward. But I, I think it's interesting about this ceremonial conclusion to our broadcast day. You know, the voice would always come on and, you know, and, and there was an attempt to kind of control the, the overall programming and to say, look, you know, it's, it's time to go to bed. You know, no more beer. You, you got to get up out of that chair. You know, you, you might have to actually go to work tomorrow. And right. we had we had a spatialization of, of the news and entertainment and mass communications that people could kind of count on. You know, there were X number of pages in the New York Times, unless there was a very special edition. You know, there were X number of program slots uh, during, you know, a television day. And people kind of, you know, accepted how that worked. They didn't realize that behind those frames, what was controlling that were slots of advertising. You know, that's what was really driving that. You know, there, there were only so many slots for advertisers to reach audience. And they controlled then the supposed, you know, slots of content. And uh, mm. so that was kind of a, a hidden behind the scenes thing. But then we have moved to the point where all of those frames are gone. They're gone in terms of any spatialization of time. Now it's it's 24-7 and who knows how many channels. 
You know, I just, I keep getting blown away about the number of reality TV shows. Every time I mm. do any research mm. into that, I, it just freaks me out that how many mm. there are. <laughs> but we have this, in addition to the expansion of boundaries that way, one of the major things that's happened in the world of news, which oddly enough, I mean, as smart as McLuhan was, and I think he really opened up the doors for some very interesting people like Douglas Rushkoff today and Nicholas Carr, who are writing about the effects of, of the internet um, on, on human consciousness and comprehension and attentiveness. Uh, there wasn't, a sense in McLuhan's work that I can see of really predicting how the individuals would break into the news with devices like smartphones and being able to take video. And I mean, look at today's, uh, any edition of, of any, uh, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, you'll see a major story that features all sorts of tweets from people. Sometimes the people tweeting are famous and important. You can see, okay, well, I understand why they're being quoted. But sometimes you look at it and you think of, well, who's Roger Stone from Milwaukee? You know, why is that important? Um, right. You know, and, and these sometimes the people aren't even identified. The only thing is, well, the journalist went through, found a tweet in their feed that makes a certain point, and they want to, you know, but it's completely unvetted. It has no real credibility necessarily. We who read the pieces don't even know if those are real tweets. We don't know if this is coming from bots or organizations. Because or, nobody, yeah, nobody's going to check, right? No, it's just too much. So we've not only completely blown out the boundaries in a 24-7 second by second no spatialization of time anymore. There's no spatialization and control of content. I mean, and therefore there are no, there's no journalistic standards that can apply. I mean, look at the big, you know, the, the, the big trial of, of our time right now, uh, the Derek Chauvin, George Floyd case in, in Minneapolis uh, and the defense, I believe is about to rest. I don't know if they have already. Um, I don't think they were in session today. Um, but I mean, so much of that really rests on video shot in the moment. Um, and we're really not sure. Um, I mean, we have to kind of just take that as is. And that, that's such a radical difference from the Walter Cronkite era that I grew up in. And, and, and the, the, the approach to media that McLuhan was really writing about, he, his concern was about really big corporate, the three network control of, of media in America. And oddly now, and I, I, this, I'd like to get, because you've grown up in, in, to watch this whole thing happen, Oddly, now we've got this conflict between complete decentralization, blowing up authority, the fact that individuals on the street can make news and contribute news and be journalists on the scene embedded, you know, in reality. And yet, on the other hand, I think we've got more control in a monolithic sense from big tech giants like Facebook, like Twitter. Um, I mean, I'm very concerned about the power they're wielding. Are you? Mm -hmm. mm. 
I could not be more concerned about it. This has been a particular bugbear of mine for the past um, several years as I've kind of watched places like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter actively censor in the name of quote-unquote disinformation thing, uh, articles, news items, etc. that are uncomfortable that people might not want to hear about that might sort of contradict a narrative that that might lead people to not sort of be shuttled into the proper spaces that they need to be. I think it's a huge problem when we have places like Google, for example, which is a private company that contracts with the U.S. government on various technologies, deciding what items of news are algorithmically important for people to be listening to. Exactly, I mean, exactly. People use this all the time, and it drives me a little crazy whenever Twitter does something, for example, like um, you know, banning Donald Trump from its platform, right? Now, there's no love loss between me and Donald Trump, obviously, but at the same time, uh, whenever his entire tweet history is just erased overnight, people will say things that like, well, Twitter is a private company. And I say, hold on for a second. At what point, how much government money do you have to take, right? How, how embedded with the state do you have to be to not be a public utility, to still be a private company? It's, um, it's really difficult. And it leads to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier. And I, I'd like to share this just because I think it's really funny. Um, about kind of where we're at with journalists today. So you mentioned Walter Cronkite, right? Um, and there was this great essay by a guy, a journalist named Michael Tracy, who's uh, a very controversial figure online. People sort of, uh, it's a love or hate relationship with this guy, right? <clears throat> but he does this kind of great takedown. It's called Profiles in Journalistic Courage. And it's about a character, uh, named Marlo Stern, who writes for a place called The Daily Beast. Are you familiar with The Daily yeah, Beast? Yeah, uh-huh. Okay, so I'll just read a few clips from this, because, I mean, this is axe grinding, right? Michael Tracy obviously has uh, issues with this particular person, so it's it's infighting, but I think on the way, he gets to um, some pretty funny some pretty funny points here. So, here we go. Uh He's he's basically talking about how how Marlo Stern's job as a senior editor at this paper seems to be aggregating uh, late night comedy clips into listicle articles. And so he says, admittedly, this tabulation of posts does not capture the whole scope of Marlo's work. It leaves out bombshells, such as an aggregation of Seth Rogen tweets roasting Ted Cruz, with some additional pithy remarks by Marlo appended. But it's in his consistently intense focus on TV show summaries that Marlowe's journalistic acumen really shines through. In October of 2020, for instance, the month before the culmination of a heated presidential election, 18 of Marlowe's 26 posts, or 69%, were sizzling aggregations of TV show clips. How the Daily Beast readership would ever be able to survive without the summarizations Marlowe exclusively writes alongside each of these clips, it's impossible to say. 
Consider the vast effort Marlowe must marshal in the production of such posts. Pause and contemplate the magnitude of the commitment required for him to transcribe all the most hilarious quotes from the late-night clips he collects, just in case Daily Beast website visitors want to both watch the clip and read his sassy recap for some reason. The sense of purpose and dedication necessary to perform these heroic feats of transcription is only part of what inspires such loyal admiration for Marlowe across the online media industry. And it goes on. It's a great article that I'll link in the show notes. But I think that what we're kind of finding is this style of media report, um, this kind of focus on aggregation of things like tweets and frankly, tabloid nonsense into a constantly flowing uh, stream of, of dopamine, right? Straight to the brain. And when you combine that, with the other thing that we're talking about, which is the systematic sort of censorship and shutting down of other stories that might affect this narrative in some way. It, you know, news media is in dire straits right now, you know, because nobody can be a real journalist anymore. You, you really, you can't get any, nobody's going to give you any money to do some real investigative journalism when when there's no m more money in news anyway. Well, I think that's, there are a couple of really interesting points about that. I'll take the last one first. We've reached saturation point. So there is no more money. There is no more demographic for the media to mine. They've, they've, they can only go backwards. And we're seeing this very dramatically with uh, you know, vehicles like CNN, they can only lose traction. They're never going to, to, to regain position or to grow that market. There's just simply too many players, too much competition, too much uh, information overload. So people are, are pulling back from that. One of the other things that's really interesting to look at in very quantitative, as in, you know, totally measurable terms, is the difference today versus 25 years ago, the difference in the amount of opinion or op-ed contributions uh, on both, uh, in both newspaper you know, format and broadcast um, relative to investigative journalism. I mean, it's just, it, it, it is an absolute sea change that has just quietly sort of happened. And so now we accept uh, and if people um, follow uh, the New York Times at all, which I think is one of the great tragedies of, of the modern era, I used to have enormous respect for the old gray lady, and uh, I don't anymore. But if you check them out online, one big difference between uh, the, the opening page, the home page, versus the, the newspaper, the printed version, is that the opinion column is it to your immediate right. So it really looks like it's given privileged position, which it isn't in the printed version. And that list of contributors has just grown, whereas investigative journalism has just declined and declined to the point where I'm not even sure the word investigative is, is really appropriate in, in many instances. I'm not sure that we know that anymore relative to the past. But the other thing, and I don't know if you really experience this when you go to a newsroom of a major uh, broadcast channel or a major metropolitan newspaper uh, because the the personnel 
has changed dramatically. When I was in high school, I won the Quill and Scroll Society Journalism Award, and which was cool. Um, and one of the things was I got to do a brief internship at the Chicago Tribune. And mm. in those days, there were there were adults working there. There there were people who'd been in the business for thirty years. You know, the kind of people who would bleed ink. You know, yeah. people like Studs Terkel, and oh, yeah. the the sports guy. Uh, he never actually smoked the cigar, but he always had the stub of a cigar and he wore suspenders and he hung out in boxing gyms. You know, he knew boxers and he picked up tips in barber shops and he bet on the horses. He didn't just write about, you know, he was in it. It was this whole magical world of people who lived and breathed their job. Well, now you go and there are a lot of very young people who are really into social media and they're more on their their Twitter feeds than they are checking out really other networks and what's what the news is. They're 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 not knowledgeable. They're they're not bringing that background to what's going on. That's not true in every case and I am generalizing, but I think there's been an enormous uh, collapse in terms of intellectual and educational capital in our newsrooms. You know, it just is. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think that the last journalism that I recall seeing, uh, it's not this way anymore, but I think Vice used to do some really interesting work. Yes, they um, did. I think they used to go to some interesting places and do some really uh, kind of boots on the ground gonzo reporting that was fascinating to watch they have some great documentaries if you go back even just five or six years um they've been sort of co-opted into the into the listicle problem i think they were acquired by viacom something like that anyhow um and also uh there was a great journalistic piece by nicholson baker on the origins of covid19 that created a firestorm because you know it didn't exactly line up ideologically with what a lot of people want to believe about uh, the COVID-19 origin, right? Which, of course, at the end of the day, we don't know. But Baker, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Human Smoke, which I've mentioned, I think, probably a dozen times on this show now, uh, really did his homework. And it's a, it's about a 10,000-word um, essay, which is a problem to begin with. Because yes. Congratulations well, you know, getting someone to read 10,000 words. But those are the last two that I really recall thinking, you know, this is this is journalism. I think Matt Taibbi does it as well. I think that unfortunately people like Glenn Greenwald who has done who has really put his life at risk for some of the thi- like, you know, for the WikiLeaks stuff. Um they they're all kind of falling prey though to this circular firing squad of kind of catty online Twitter fighting all day long. And uh, I want some stories, man. Yeah. And I, I think too, there's been an open, uh, I mean, going back to your timeline idea, I mean, I think you can really look back and see, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the, the, the process beginning of, of a, just an open ideological shift to push revenue you know, where suddenly there was no attempt really anymore at, at genuine objectivity and balance. You know, that went out the window and it, it became this adversarial partisan uh, 
bun fight, you know, and and that's where we're at today. And I think that it's no wonder that good individual writers and researchers find it so difficult to get, you know, any kind of breakthrough because the editorial departments don't want that. You know, they really have an edict in place. And once you have that, I, I think that that's kind of the death knell to me for, for legitimate news. And I, I don't know where we're going to, to find that. Um, I think it's just going to be more corporatized, commercialized, more related to advertising. And meanwhile, our advertising will, will get less interesting. I, I think in our, our next episode, we're, we're going to look at some advertising, which is, I think, one of the greatest subjects um, that there can be. A lot of people don't realize that advertising is the most prominent, ubiquitous form of creativity the world's ever seen. It's everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, even on the Highlands Highway in Papua New Guinea, which is no highway, I can tell you, there are billboards. They might be overgrown with, you know, with vines and have bats living in them. But, you know, there are billboards. There's advertising everywhere. And I think maybe the way to to wrap up this episode, but to to link into our next sort of uh, investigation of this diet of illusion um, is that that advertising is the real message. You know, if McLuhan said the medium is the message, I think that the message from our sponsor is what the real message is. What do you think about that as a way to uh, to maybe close off this episode and to to set us up for uh an investigation of of some of just the weirdest forms of creativity that, that have ever emerged. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm excited to get into that. I'd like to make that move and looking a bit into the future, perhaps for a part three, of course, no promises here, but after we make this move into advertising, I would also like to talk about, to kind of go back to all the way to the beginning of this episode and kind of, you know, make it elliptical in that sense to, to maybe investigate a bit what what is being uh, shut down in our own consciousness by this constant stream of dopamine and news, right? I'd like to to do the advertising and then perhaps for a third episode, go to uh, the, the human consequence of this. Why does this all matter, right? Is this just David and Chris, you know? I think that would yeah, be really good. Is this really just David good. and Chris, you know, com- complaining about stuff? I don't think so. I think that you and I have some real questions about the literal future of humanity if if people don't start uh, paying attention to this kind of thing. Uh, I think that's a really good plan to to reverse back to that once we've we've looked at advertising because we we would certainly, you know, go right through the the eye of the needle in terms of of Emerson and Thoreau's concern in the you know in the 1840s which seems like a long time ago but they were really talking about the the loss at the human individual cognitive level and at the community level you know before that societal you know bigger frame they were talking about the loss of how certain senses were atrophying with under the influence of this extension of the media of mass communications 
And God, imagine what what they would think today. I mean, you know, their idea of of mass communications seems so humble and innocent relative to our twenty four seven second by second constant Twitter feed. You know, insanity. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing to look at because it isn't inevitable the way mass communications have evolved. Uh, we can't necessarily turn back the clock, and I'm not saying that, but I think that we can look at alternatives for ourselves individually and for that sense of community that you and I are trying to build in a in a small scale Um sort of intellectual and cultural fellow travelers, we, we can take more control of this. It isn't a done deal that we are simply uh, out of the raft and just running down the rapids and all we have to do is avoid the rocks. That's all we can do. I, I, I don't accept that. I think we can take a more active look at that. So that would be a good uh, way to to head into maybe that third episode in this series of how to break with the diet allu- of illusion and to get some real nourishment, you know, within the terms of that metaphor. I like that. Well said. Perfectly said. Excellent. Okay, everybody. So we will see you next week, same time. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Take care. See you then.